0: take your Bible and turn to Luke 22 one final time, today's passage is on page 829 in the Bible under the seat in front of you if you need a copy of the Word of God. We're studying the final portion of Luke 22, verses 54 to 71. And this portion of Luke's Gospel is narrating the final 24 hours of Jesus' life before His crucifixion. He was crucified essentially for sedition, for uh, what they perceived to be doing actions and conveying a message that uh, was inciting people against Roman authority. Luke is writing this book to give an accurate account, an orderly account, he told us in chapter 1, of what Jesus did and said in his earthly ministry. But we have to acknowledge that Luke was not an unbiased author in what he was saying here. He wasn't passive. He wasn't disinterested in what he was writing. He wasn't writing a journal article for an academic journal. He was writing for a response. He's writing for your response. He wants you to read this text and to feel bothered by what you read today. He wants you to sense the injustice of what we read in this passage today. And so have that in mind, please, as You follow along as I read today's passage, Luke 22, verses 54 to 71. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Perhaps some of you, or many of you even, have attended or gone to, I should say, uh, various Civil War battlefields here in our own country. Or maybe you've even been overseas and, been, uh, and, and seen some of the places where the devastations of World War I or World War II took place, or perhaps have been out east and seen where the Revolutionary War was fought. In various battlefields. I think we can safely say that we are better Americans when we remember the struggles of our forefathers. When we read statements like Lincoln's address at the Gettysburg Cemetery about the fact that we can't hollow this ground because it's already been hollowed by the thousands upon thousands of people who gave their lives there for the freedoms that we enjoy today. We are better Americans when we, re- we remember the struggles of our forefathers. I think it's also safe for us to say we are better disciples when we remember the suffering of Jesus. We too often forget the price that Jesus paid for us to have the spiritual freedom that we so gratefully sing about and praise the Lord for in our prayers and our lives. What our passage lays out for us today is the overwhelming sense of how much Jesus suffered for us before he even suffered on the cross itself. In our passage today, Jesus was rejected for sinners. Jesus was rejected for sinners, ourselves included. We praise him for that. And so our response to that rejection that he uh, suffered so heartlessly from these wicked men is to bow before him in humble, faith-filled repentance. Turn your heart before the Lord and bow before him in humble, faith-filled repentance. Repentance, And so what this passage lays out for us is not why Jesus was rejected, but rather how Jesus was rejected. What the steps were that were involved in that rejection. And each one led necessarily to the next one in an unbreakable sequence. So here in verses 54 to 62, we see that Jesus was denied by faithless disciples. Jesus was denied by faithless disciples. And you might object, even from the way I worded that, with disciples plural, you say, no, there's really only one disciple here that's denying him or betraying him, we could say. And I would say, well, you're noticing what I'm noticing as well. Yeah, there's only one disciple left. That means that if you, even if you leave Judas out of it, the other ten who were with him just moments before this in the Garden of Gethsemane, the passage we looked at last week, They've already taken off running. Only Peter was willing to even follow at a distance to stay close enough to see what was going on here. All the others had completely abandoned ship and were probably hiding out either separately or perhaps even together in one of their homes together. But only Peter was willing to stay close enough to see what was going on. He's unwilling at this point to publicly defend Jesus, even though, again, in our previous passage, he said, I'm going to go with you to death or to prison. And here he is, he's not even willing to be visibly present with Jesus. Just a little while before this, he's willing to cut off someone's ear for the sake of defending Jesus. Now he's hiding in the shadows. What was Peter wanting to do? I mean, the passage tells us he wants to stay warm. He's sitting by a fire in the middle of a courtyard in the high priest's house. It appears that the house is shaped probably like a U shape, and there's a courtyard in the middle. And uh, John, the the Gospel of John, tells us that Peter had access uh, here uh, because of his connections. And and here he, he wants to stay just close enough to know what's going on, to hear what people are saying to Jesus, see what they're doing to Jesus, but not be with him any further. You wanted to keep an eye on what's happening. And I will say, this section's a little bit embarrassing about Peter. We don't really like it when people tell embarrassing stories about ourselves. My own kids don't like it when I tell embarrassing stories about them. I try and keep those to a minimum, at least here in the pulpit. Elsewhere, maybe it's a little safer. but, uh, But if you're Peter, you'd probably be like, Oh, Luke, come on, do you have to include that passage? And Luke would probably say, Yeah, I do, and here's why. Because people need to know that when they fail as a disciple of Jesus, they're not the only one. There's someone who was really close to Jesus who caved. We need to hear this story, even though it's embarrassing, but it's a true story. It's a human part of following Jesus it's good for us to remember that even those disciples of Jesus were themselves sinners in need of restoration and forgiveness, the forgiveness and restoration that only Jesus could provide. And so maybe this encourages you today, because perhaps you walked in with a guilty conscience, thinking of of your own failures, the the specific struggles that you have uh, failed in this past week. And you need to have your conscience cleansed by the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Perhaps you need help because of some struggle you're having, some particular sin habit that you just cannot seem to get victory over. And this story itself reminds you, you can get help. It's not too late for you. And so please talk to someone before you leave, or at least text someone or, or say, hey, do you mind if we get together for a, for a coffee or a lunch this week so we can talk about some things that are going on in my life? So that then someone else can come alongside you and help you work through your own struggles. I mentioned the the possibility of having a guilty conscience. Surely that was involved in Peter's weeping here at the end of this passage that we'll get to in a few minutes. But it's also possible that Peter's own conscience needed to be tuned up a little bit. Because you notice he lies here three times. And I want to encourage you to calibrate your conscience, tune it up just right so that when you're put into a pressure cooker situation, you don't have the liberty in your heart to lie. It's strange in our day to tell the truth when it's going to look bad for you, when it's going to put someone you love in a bad situation or putting yourself in a bad situation. But does it not testify to the truthfulness of the Word of God and to the power of the Spirit's work in your heart when you tell the truth, even when it's going to look bad for you? This is why I want to encourage you to have a conscience that's calibrated to the Word of God so that you don't have the liberty to lie in moments of pressure. You notice Peter sitting down here, sitting in the shadows by a fire in verse 55, wanting to be close enough but far enough away so as to not be indicted with Jesus. What was Peter so ashamed of that when this servant girl identified him as being with Jesus, he said in the strongest of terms, I don't know this person that you're talking about? Why was he so ashamed? Why was it such a problem if he was with Jesus? You would have to think, surely, part of it is the fear that if he's so closely tied to Jesus, maybe they're going to take him away as well. Maybe they're going to kill him as well. That seems to be at least a part of what's going on here, that he's fearful, running for his own life, perhaps, even though just a few minutes before this he had said, I'm going to go to death with you, if that's what what it's going to take. So he denies in the strongest terms. Woman, I do not know him. I know nothing of what you're talking about here. A little later else, a little later on, perhaps just a few minutes, perhaps half an hour, we don't know, but a little interval of time later, someone else says, you're also one of them. What's the them there? The disciples of Jesus. And he said, man, I am not. So he's denied knowing Jesus. Here he denies being a disciple, being a follower. Then you have this third Inquirer, aren't you one of those people? And he specifically ties Peter's connection to Jesus because of the fact that he's a Galilean, because he can tell from the way he talks. That's what one of the other gospel writers, I believe Matthew, was the one who points out that detail. It's because of your accent. And so we can tell someone's from the southwest because they wear those weird bolo ties. This looks like strings i don't, never worn one, never planned to. We can tell someone's from the south because they wear cowboy boots or a cowboy hat. We can tell someone's from the northeast because they say the water is terrible instead of the water is terrible. That seems to be what's going on here, that uh, the way Peter inflects in some particular way, the way he emphasizes a syllable of a word is different from the way that people here in Jerusalem emphasize it. And so clearly, you're from Galilee, you must be with Jesus. Obviously, Luke is omitting other conversations here. He's just streamlining the conversation. We don't know what else the other people around the fire were talking about that night. Luke just wants you to know the most important parts of what that conversation was. And the most important part was Peter three times saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I was not with Jesus. But as he said, this third denial, immediately the rooster crowed in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I almost get goosebumps when I read that line. If you just read this text thoughtfully and imaginatively and you think of what it's like when someone looks you in the eye, they don't have to say another word. You know exactly what they're thinking. Imagine the shame. Probably the, the blushing sense that Peter had when he looked up and made eye contact with Jesus, who probably at that point was being led back through the courtyard after being in the high priest's house a few minutes before. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, this is verse uh, 34, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What do you think Jesus meant by that look? By making eye contact with Peter? Do you think it was in a condemning way? maybe. It seems more likely that he was trying to draw Peter's memory back to what he had said. Satan's going to sift you, but I've prayed for you. Your faith's not going to fail. You're not going to ultimately fall away. Go strengthen your brothers. That's what he urged Peter to do. Go tell other people, yes, I sinned terribly, And you did too. You weren't even there that night, but you're forgiven too. What we read about Peter in the Gospel of John is Jesus saying to Peter after the resurrection, which we'll see in a few weeks, after the resurrection he said, go feed my sheep three times. As if to say three times, you failed me three times, your ministry is going to continue on. You're actually better equipped to minister to other sinners because of the struggles that you have had, because of your own temptations. I want to urge you, Christian, to let the look of Jesus motivate you to fight your own sin. To not let your sin habits keep cycling through perpetually without meditating on what Jesus agonizingly went through to provide the forgiveness of sins that you need. I also want to urge you to minister to others who have faltered. When Jesus said to Peter to strengthen your brothers, he's saying there are other people who need the help that you're going to uniquely be able to provide because of your failures. And we know that Peter ministered effectively after this because in Luke's sequel to the Gospel of Luke, it'll be a few years before we get into a book that long, I promise, uh, or at least take it that slowly, uh, but in the book of Luke, we see Peter ministering faithfully and talking about people who denied Jesus and killing him, but he knew even when he said that, you know, I denied him too. I was a faithless disciple. We also know from the way that Peter wrote in First and Second Peter that he was able to minister better because of his failure than he would have otherwise. I want to encourage us then as well to show a steadfast willingness to forgive even the worst of sins, even the worst of sinners, to restore the broken. Perhaps you've heard of the story in church history where about the year 250, there was a controversy in the Roman church, the church centered in Rome, because the emperor had told Christians that they needed to make sacrifices to other false gods. And they needed to show proof by certificate that they had done this. And so basically, everyone was going to either be killed for not sacrificing to false gods, or they were going to do it and they were going to demonstrate that they had done it by having a certificate that they had just offered sacrifice to a false god. Well, not everyone who didn't sacrifice was killed. Those people were called confessors. They had continued to confess the faith. But lots of Christians, people who loved Jesus and had repented of their sins, did sacrifice to other false gods. And those people were called the lapsed Christians. Kind of like people will say, your service has lapsed with Comcast or at and or something like that. Your service has lapsed. Here, your faith has lapsed. Your repentance has lapsed. And it's evidenced by the fact that you still have that certificate that says you worshiped that other god. So now you have two kinds of Christians. You have the lapsed Christians and the confessor Christians. What do you think the confessor Christians thought of the lapsed Christians? You lazy bums! You all sacrificed to other gods. You weren't as holy as we were. You can't be in our church anymore. And so you had a controversy called the lapsed controversy around the year 250. It had ripple effects for hundreds of years after that. Essentially, what they were trying to deal with was... How do you handle other Christians who have sinned in a grievous way? That's an important conversation. That's an important question. When we have conversations about church membership and church discipline, we're essentially having that kind of conversation. And so what we want to do as a congregation is uphold the beauty of the gospel by saying, yes, we are all terrible sinners in need of the sacrifice of Jesus. But when somebody sins, we forgive them. When they repent, we forgive them. If somebody comes to us and say, I have grievously sinned against the Lord. It has affected my testimony of faith. Will you please forgive me? We gladly open up our arms and say, absolutely, we forgive you. This is what it looks like to be a gospel-preaching church, to say, we forgive even the chief of sinners. If If someone like Paul were to walk in and say, would you let me be part of your church? Because... I'm the chief of sinners, I know I don't deserve the forgiveness of Christ, but I need it, we would say yes. The gospel tells us we are so wonderfully forgiven, we will offer that same kind of forgiveness to you as well. So Jesus was denied by faithless disciples in verses 54 to 62. Secondly, Jesus was beaten by mocking soldiers in verses 63 to 65. Jesus was beaten by mocking soldiers. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. Blasphemy is the act of speaking irreverently about God. Whether Luke used that word blasphemy, blaspheming, because he knew that they were blaspheming, or whether they actually understood that they were blaspheming, we don't know. But the injustice of this section is astounding. Our society rightfully goes nuts when we learn that someone is doing despicable deeds to someone in custody. I mean, these, these are the stories that make the biggest headlines in our country today, it seems, when there's some kind of injustice to someone who's in custody. But what Luke wants you to do when you read this is to recognize the injustice of it as well and to recognize the humiliation that Jesus endured for the sake of saving sinners. When we read in verse 65, Luke said many other things, th- there were many other things said against him. It's almost as if he's, he's saying, almost euphemistically, like, I'm not even going to get into the details of what else they were saying. It was so bad. What's amazing is this is the only other place in the Bible, or there's only one other place in the Bible where we read of the, read the phrase, many other things. So here it's, there are so many other bad things we can't tell you. We're not even going to mention them here. In the end of the Gospel of John, though, one of the final verses of the Gospel of John, we read that uh, there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So it's almost like Luke and John are taking exact opposite texts here. Like, I'm not going to tell you, Luke says, all the bad things because you wouldn't want to hear it if I told it to you. And John says, there are so many other things that I could tell you about what Jesus did, the the amazing works, the amazing ministry that he had, the amazing sermons that he preached, and on and on. There's not even room for me to tell it. The whole world couldn't contain it. But Jesus listened to the accusing voices of mocking soldiers. These mocking soldiers didn't know that Jesus would indeed know who was hitting him. Do I just need to go to the... uh, Handheld mic, Eddie? It's probably best at this point. It sounds like it's kind of clipping out. Is that true? Okay, so I'm just going to go to this other mic just for the sake of... Keep going? I'm going to keep going. <clears throat> the mocking soldiers did not know that Jesus would indeed know who was hitting him. They're playing in their minds this great game of blind man's bluff, right? You have no idea who this is, but as the judge, he not only knew what was happening at that moment, who those men were who were hitting him, But he also knew it was happening at every other moment of their lives. And one day they would give account for their actions, not just those actions at that specific moment, but every other one of their actions, every one of their words, every one of their motives. And so will you. Don't believe the lie that because you're in the dark, no one else knows. Don't believe that a secret moment is truly secret. In other words, we will all give account to the Lord, so choose now to live for His glory even in those secret moments. And as Jesus heard the accusing voice of these mocking soldiers, we know that ultimately uh, Satan is the the true accuser. They were giving voice to his hate-filled accusations, and perhaps you have heard the hate-filled accusations of Satan himself as well. And We often sing a song called Before the Throne of God Above. One of the verses of that song says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What should you do when you hear the accusing, mocking voice of Satan? That song tells us, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Jesus was beaten by mocking soldiers. And finally, in verses 66-71, to Jesus was opposed by arrogant rulers. These rulers did not believe who Jesus said he was. Do you believe everything that Jesus said about who he was? This is the ultimate question. doesn't matter. Let's leave these mocking, arrogant rulers out of this conversation. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus himself asked that question previously in Luke. This is the crucial question. Will you confess that he is the one true God? And will you repent of your sins? And be saved by grace through faith alone. This phrase that these rulers gathered together reminded me as I studied this week of Psalm 2. One of my favorite psalms because of the way it helps interpret the whole Bible. Of the fact that there are two ways to live. You can either worship God or you can be his enemy. There's no neutral ground. That's what Psalm 2 lays out for us when we read, Why do the nations rage? Which it sure sounds like, in this passage, these rulers were raging against Jesus. And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That sounds a lot like this council gathering together to accuse Jesus of things he had not done. But Jesus, in this passage, I just lost my place by turning back to Psalm 2. Let me get back on the right section here. They give him the opportunity in verse 67 if you're the Messiah, which is what the word Christ there means, if you're the Messiah, tell us. We want to hear it from your own lips. And Jesus knew where this conversation was going to go because he had had it so many other times here in the book of Luke. right? Remember when they're asking the question about the coin? They're trying to trick him into giving some question that makes him look bad one way or the other, and he turns it around and puts all the onus on them to give the right answer? He does the same thing here. Essentially, he realizes, I'm not going to play this game with you anymore. Because if I tell you you're not going to believe me, and if I try and have an honest conversation with you, You're not going to do that either. If I ask you questions, that's what he says in verse 68, if I ask you, who has the power to do what I've done? Who does the Old Testament say is going to be the one who causes the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to come back to life? Who has that kind of authority? They aren't going to give an honest answer. And so he knew where this conversation was going to go. He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. But... From now on, let me tell you what's going to happen. And he leaps over human history. He leaps over where we are 2,000 years later, and he keeps going to the point where he is seated at the right hand of the power of God. Ultimately, he is seated there right now, but he's, he's looking forward to this son of man being seated at the right hand of the power of God. What's that talking about? There he's referring to Daniel chapter 7, where you kind of look toward the end of time, In Daniel 7, verse 13, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, as God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Jesus has in mind when he says that the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. But he combines that with another significant Old Testament passage, passage. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is taking two of the most often quoted Old Testament passages and combines them into one here. He takes Psalm 110, a Messianic psalm, that says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That sitting at the right hand of God, at the power of God, is what Jesus is referring to here in verse 69. Jesus himself is reigning right now. He is at the right hand of God the Father. This is what happened when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, as we'll see uh, in April as we get into the end of chapter 24. But these powerful rulers respond to these scriptural quotations, these Old Testament quotations, and they said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Ultimately, what he's saying by that is, I'm telling you everything you want to know. I'm not going to get into this any further with you. I've told you everything you needed weeks ago, months ago, years ago, and you haven't heard it. So no matter what I tell you right now, you don't want to hear it. So I'll just say, yes, I am the Son of of God, but I'm not going to say it quite the way that you want me to say it. He's still in complete control of this conversation. Jesus is. He he knew that they wouldn't be treating him this way if they weren't believing that he had already said he was the Son of Man and the Son of God. The whole court proceeding was on the basis of what Jesus had already said and done. And that's why... He decided not to go any further with this. Their response, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Remember weeks before and days before, they're in the temple wanting to grab him, wanting to take him away before he creates a bigger scene as thousands upon thousands of people crowd into Jerusalem for Passover. So they're looking for an opportunity. Here, he's just played into their own hands. It's as if, They were willing to get their hands dirty if that's what it took to get him out of the the picture. But here, they don't even need to get their hands dirty because he himself has incriminated himself with his own testimony. They could not have been happier to hear that answer. But you have to imagine as well, there was probably almost like a catch in their throat when they hear him say that. Like, what? Do you not realize what you just said? We don't need anybody else to take the stand Because you just said everything yourself. But realize by Jesus saying that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God, that He is seated there right now. He is reigning over all things, and He will reign forever, whether you submit to Him or not. And so again, we ask, are you submitted to Christ as the ruler of the world, as the one God who can forgive you of your sins? who can deal with your greatest need of forgiveness before God. We are here as a church to tell the truth about Him, to identify Him correctly. And nothing else we do is on that level of importance. That's why I said at the very beginning of the worship service, we're going to do the most important thing that's going to happen all week long. The next most important thing that's going to happen is next Sunday morning when we preach the Word of God and tell you what God has said and who God is. And so... That's why we invest most of our energy as a church and most of our resources as a church and most of our time as a church in making known who God is, in seeking to make disciples who then make disciples, who then make disciples. That's why I'm here, because other people made disciples who made disciples who made disciples. That's why you're here as well if you're a Christian, because other people have invested in you the truth of the Word of God. And so we seek to make the Word of God plain every single week to accurately preach the truth, to faithfully evangelize the lost, to glorify God in every part of our ministry, to do what His Word says and not feel like we have to add on human wisdom on top of that. We don't need to get into gimmicks and games to make our church attractive to people. We're going to tell the truth and we hope that that itself is attractive. We hope that that is itself enough reason for you to want to invite your friends and your loved ones to come and say, you know what? Easter's coming up. Do you want to come to church with me? Maybe the Sunday before Easter, which is the passage I'll preach the crucifixion itself. And maybe on Easter Sunday, which is the day when the most amazing news in the world will be preached, that Jesus came out of a tomb. Maybe those would be the days that you can bring your unsaved family and friends, or even your fellow Christian friends who are perhaps wandering from one church to another and not sure where they should put their roots down in a congregation. We want to urge you to bring them here. Jesus was rejected on behalf of sinners. What was it that motivated him to be willing to go through the agony that he knew was coming his way? Let me read to you a brief section from a book I'm reading. This author named Elliot Clark writes, Our family's apartment building sat at the edge of a small city huddled on the skirts of a rolling Central Asian mountain range. There were a missionary family there in Central Asia. Said one afternoon as my wife was working in the kitchen I heard a sudden and sharp gasp. Then without hesitation she cried out for me to come. I immediately hurried to her side, assuming she was hurt. But there, from our kitchen window, I found her staring out toward the opposite hill between our home and the village. I followed her sightline to the silhouette of our eleven year old son standing on a excuse me, on a mound of dirt more than a hundred yards away. Across from him was a group of boys. A village troop we both easily recognized, a gang known by kids in our neighborhood as the Rough Uncles. As we squinted into the distance, our eyes locked onto the boy closest to our son. From his body language, we could sense that this was a confrontation. In the village boy's hand was a large rock about the size of a football. We both watched in stunned silence as he cocked his arm and raised the stone in anger over our son. I froze. For that brief moment, we felt helpless and hopeless as parents, unsure of what to do and completely unable to rescue our son. Looking back, I realized I could have thrown open the window and yelled at the village boys, or I could have raced down the stairs and outside to come to my son's aid, but would that have helped or made things worse? It all happened so fast, or maybe I was too slow. But before we could muster any semblance of a response, the situation was somehow diffused. The boy lowered the rock... And our son came hurrying back to the house, his face mixed with concern, shame, and uncertainty. As soon as he walked in the door, we embraced him and asked what had happened. He told us the rough uncles had come upon him without warning. Neighborhood kids usually avoided any contact with them. The group knew he was a foreigner and thus presumed he was a Christian. They asked if he believed Jesus is God's son who died on the cross. When our son answered in the affirmative, the boys were incensed and threatened him with stoning. My wife, who by this time was almost beside herself, then asked, So what did you do? To which he responded, I told them I wasn't afraid of them. I told them they could kill me, but that didn't matter because I would just end up in heaven. What that 11-year-old boy knew was what Jesus knew. The end of the story. You can't hurt me. Because for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus himself, as he stood there before his accusers, getting slapped in the face, getting spit upon all as he had prophesied would happen, he took it because he knew the end of the story. Jesus was rejected on your behalf. Bow before him in grateful, repentant praise. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we truly do believe in you. We truly believe this passage that Jesus was agonizingly suffering under the hands of wicked men. Even as we sang earlier, his friends, through fear, disowned him. They were not willing to let their face be seen with him. He was denied, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was rejected. He was opposed by arrogant rulers, all for the sake of our souls. So may you renew our love for him, our confidence in him, our obedience to him, our hatred of our sin. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.